Hey, welcome to the Drug Trading Podcast. I'm Keith. I got Bobby Lawler with me. He's a drug intelligence officer with the New England Haida. Uh, he's also a retired New Haven, Connecticut police officer. He's going to give us a rundown of some events in the Northeast in regards to marijuana and fentanyl. And there's been a lot of debate about whether marijuana and fentanyl are really being found together or being seen together. And Bobby's going to let us know about some of the interesting information he's run across on overdoses across the Northeast. Okay. But first, make sure you hit that subscribe button for more drug intelligence and training information. Make sure you leave a comment and a review and let us know what you're seeing in your area when it comes to fentanyl and other drugs. Welcome to the Drug Training Podcast with Keith Graves, a police officer who spent 28 years specializing in drug investigations and who regularly teaches law enforcement officers, private businesses, and concerned families on spotting and dealing with drug use. This podcast is the essential resource for both professionals and individuals who need practical help, advice, and insight. Now, here's your host, Keith Graves. All right, I want to thank Online Drug Training for sponsoring the show. If you need training on your schedule when you want it, check out onlinedrugtraining.com where you can get the latest drug training. Bobby, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, Keith. Thanks for having me. So, um, I currently am the Drug Intelligence Officer for New England Haida uh, for the state of Connecticut. Uh, formerly, I was a police officer in New Haven, Connecticut, I'm a second generation police officer. My father was a police officer in New Haven, Connecticut, actually third generation because my mom's uncle was also a police officer in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, I come from a long line of uh, police officers. I have a cousin who's been a, a police officer in a neighboring town. Um, so I'm pretty embedded in law enforcement here in Connecticut. Um, and 2015, I retired um, after, you know, a great career in New Haven. And I took this position with New England Haida as a drug intelligence officer. Now, you got a pretty good job, too, man. You're living the dream for a lot of retired cops right now. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a great job. I, I, I tell people if I complain about my job, punch me. No, <laughs> it's a it's a wonderful retirement job. You know, I'm not going back to pushing a squad car on midnights, you know, or something walking a beat somewhere you know it's it's pretty good yeah that's awesome so what do you do as a drug intelligence officer what, what what's your tasking so basically the job is to kind of liaison with the federal state and local police departments that really target drug trafficking so you know connecticut it's a small state but we have some pretty big police departments who have their own narcotics unit of course we have the dea and the atf and the fbi here in connecticut um, along with hsi and it's my job to liaison with all of them um, as a hider representative make sure they're kind of all working together um, share resources back and forth share intelligence kind of keeping you know that 10,000 foot view of what everybody is doing and then look for places where oh, this, this town is working on this, they should really hook up with DEA because DEA has this piece and, and put them together. But also, you know, when I get certain information that affects everybody, like what's going on in New York and New Jersey, because they're, they're probably our primary source of supply here for Connecticut, or what's even going on in, in Philadelphia or Baltimore or in Ohio, because we do have some connections to all, the Ohio area also, um, and let them know just so they're on on the lookout for some trends in those areas that may be coming here to Connecticut and to keep them informed. An another part of my job is to 
Um, we call them felony arrest notifications. So if I get um, alerted by the task forces and the police departments here in Connecticut that, hey, John Jones from Los Angeles is just got arrested here in Hartford, Connecticut with, you know, a kilo of cocaine or a kilo of this or guns or, or whatever the case is. I alert the, the Haida guy out in the Los Angeles area and he'll let the police departments out there know. And, and the same is true on the other end. Like if, you know, John Jones from Hartford, Connecticut got arrested in L.A., the L.A. Haida guy will let me know. And then I'll let the Hartford PD know and I'll let the DEA know and, and all the appropriate task forces so they know that, hey, we have a guy from Hartford, Connecticut out in L.A. trying to score of uh, a kilo of whatever, you know, or whatever the case is. And, you know, now they can take a deeper dive, look at them. Or maybe it's that a final piece to a drug trafficking organization that they were missing. Um, and now they could put together a better puzzle or, or picture of what is occurring. Uh, and now some of our, some of our listeners that we got, a, we got a lot of cops that listen to this. Um, but some might not know what a Haida is because they may not have a Haida in their area. So what does Haida do for them? So Haida stands for high intensity drug trafficking areas. It's a federally funded program out of the office of national, national drug control policy. And it's really tasked with bringing together federal, state, local, and tribal police departments to tackle um, drug trafficking organizations at a local and community level. So, and really, I think, I, I may be wrong about this, but I think I'm pretty right. The Haida's are really kind of the, the group associated with starting the task force model. Prior to like Haida's coming into a existence, you would have these one-offs, like if there was a serial killer, they would put together a small task force to, to, to deal with that. But in general, police departments weren't working together on something like drug trafficking and these different types of issues. And the funding that HIDA uh, supplies through the Office of National Drug Control Policy allows for the, the bringing together of these federal, state, and local police departments or sheriff's departments, depending on what part of the country you're in, um, together to work in the task force model to tackle these issues. So you're sharing resources and intelligence and manpower and targeting the same group. So you're not duplicating efforts and wasting resources and money. And I don't think cops realize, you know, if you're a patrol cop, you don't realize how much Haida funds a lot of your drug efforts. So uh, as an example, I gave a class yesterday for Northern California Haida. It was completely free for all 350 students. So all 350 students got to go to this class for free. Haida paid me for my time. And now those 350 cops got eight hours of training that they can put on their resume. So really Haida does, it does a lot. Funds task forces, funds drug education, funds, uh, I think you can get equipment out of Haida too, right? Yeah, so uh, a lot of the task forces, they do get their equipment through Haida um, paid for, and it's theirs. Um, you know, they're, they're not giving it back, you know, when it, they're done using it, it's theirs to use. Uh, and I, the education is a big one too. Um, you know, and, and we fund the domestic highway enforcement program, you know, uh, a lot of money goes to uh, state police organizations or troopers or highway patrols, depending on what part of the country you're in to fund those interdiction efforts to get those larger loads coming into your area or leaving your area to go to across the country to different parts of the country to get the supplies there or the money coming back from, you know, specifically from the wet East coast down to, you know, the, the border areas 
um, you know, the money back trying to interdict that stuff is a major issue too. So uh, the DHE program for part of HIDA funds a lot of that interdiction efforts. All right. So Bobby, let's talk about fentanyl and marijuana. Okay. So um, you put out a couple of interesting uh, bulletins, intelligence bulletins about weed and uh, fentanyl and overdoses in your area. And uh, let's hear about it. Let's, if you could just start from the beginning, what do you know? Okay. So this may take a couple of minutes, so bear with me. That's all right, man. We got time. So Connecticut, um, thankfully, we have what we call the statewide overdose reporting directive. And what it is, is all the EMS personnel in Connecticut are governed through the Connecticut Department of Health Office of Emergency Medical Services. Um, as the HIDA representative here a couple of years ago, at the beginning kind of, of this whole fentanyl overdose epidemic that began, um, we pitched to them to use the HIDA OD map product as a mapping software for the overdoses. Um, they liked the idea, they especially liked that it's the HIDA product and it's free. Um, and they wrote a law, it took a, a few years to get the law written and passed and work out some of the kinks. But in 2019, we started beta testing this SORT initiative with uh, OD Map being the this mapping software. And basically what it does is it requires all EMS personnel within 24 hours of responding to an overdose to call into the Connecticut Poison Control Center of what the where the overdose occurred, what were the observations the uh, the EMS personnel saw, and any other important notes that the EMS personnel would would have. Um, the the data entry people at the Connecticut Poison Control then upload it into OD Map, and while the law is twenty four hours, it, we're really seeing it kind of with right after the incident and by definitely by the end of that EMS uh, person shift. So we're getting a pretty good real-time indication of where overdose clusters are occurring. So back in July, around right around July 1st, July 4th area of 2021, we started seeing an increase of overdoses where individuals were saying all they did was smoke weed. Um, the EMS personnel who are in Connecticut, you know, 99.9% .9 of them are um, certified. They're not volunteer EMS. They're all either commercial EMS or fire-based EMS or, you know, uh, real trained EMS. So you, you take what they say with, with, you know, the appropriate levity. And, you know, they were reporting opioid symptoms um, in these overdoses and the person responded to naloxone. So we started seeing them, but, you know, we, we had these, they're saying marijuana, but these are the, the kind of narratives we're getting. Also, around the same time, the Connecticut state legislator, legislature passed recreational marijuana laws. So we're going to start in 2023 having recreational marijuana. We're in this gray area right now. We have medical marijuana um, being sold. We're going to eventually in 2023 have recreational marijuana. Um, but right now we're in kind of this limbo. So we initially we kind of thought, well, maybe this is individuals saying they smoked weed because they didn't want to get in trouble. So July goes by, we get we get several cases. Um, August comes, we get some more. September comes, we get even more. And now I'm like, this is just an oddity 
you know, like seeing all these marijuana fentanyl narratives coming from the sword program, you know, what is going on? Um, and I started thinking, I was like, you know, if I'm being honest and objective, most of the people EMS um, interacts with, because most of the time they are the only people on scene, the police, um, like I'm sure everywhere are understaffed and the violence and other crimes are on the rise. They, they don't have the ability to go to a lot of these overdoses. And a lot of times it's just the fire department and the commercial EMS providers. And if I'm, you know, like I said, if I'm being honest and objective, the vast majority of these people are telling the truth. They're at least saying they've done something illegal or something they know they shouldn't have done. Like a lot of times I don't think they truly understand what they're taking. They'll, they'll say, oh, I took a Xanax. And we know from a lot of the law enforcement seizure data that the Xanaxes are either fentanyl press pills or meth press pills, you know, and they may not know that, but they know they shouldn't have been taking the Xanax the way they were. Or they'll say, you know, like, yeah, I was smoking crack or I took opioids or I did meth or whatever the case is. They're admitting they've done something illegal. So I was like, maybe we should actually start listening to what they're saying. So what I did is I started reaching out to our law enforcement contacts like, listen, if you do happen to be at one of these scenes where you have these things, EMS is saying there's opioid symptoms, the person's only claiming they smoke marijuana. If there's any samples around, collect it and let's get it to the lab for testing. So thankfully in a smaller town in Connecticut, there was a, a retired um, Connecticut State Police Sergeant who had run a height of task force for years and was kind of, you know, I'm in constant communication with him a lot. Um, and he's pretty up on the drug stuff and, and the overdose issues in Connecticut. So he was actually working in on shift uh, one night as, as the shift commander, as the captain of this department. And one of these incidents came in and he was like, yo, he told his guys, if there's stuff on scene, you need to seize it right away and we'll get it to the lab. So that's what occurred. And um, we got a positive test for marijuana and fentanyl. So that's what prompted our first situational awareness. We had these other narratives. They ended up being 39 of them, including the one positive test where people were saying, hey, I, you know, I, I had an overdose. I smoked, only smoked marijuana. And the EMS is saying opioid symptoms responded to naloxone. It, 39 is significant. We have that. That's not a small number. Yes. No, it, it's not. Even in a small state like Connecticut, it's a, it's a significant number. Um, so, you know, that led to us, you know, with the first bulletin and, you know, like, and I think is what, you know, most legitimate people do is just because you have one set of information, you don't stop there. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, what we did is we worked with our Connecticut department of health, you know, our statewide narcotics task force, which is the height of task force is run by the Connecticut state police and the DEA. And we investigated these other 39 cases. Unfortunately, in those other 39 cases, uh, there was no samples to be had that we can, you know, sitting on a police evidence locker or shelf somewhere that we can send to the lab for testing. Um, what we did discover from this kind of um, overall investigation, looking at the public health side and looking at, you know, the DEA going out and with this Connecticut State Police Task Forces and doing some interviews of some of the overdose victims and 
um, some case histories of the victims from the public health side is what we learned is that um, in most of these cases, the, the overdose victims had either previous or current opioid issues. They had previous or current or recently occurring opioid overdoses. Um, they were poly substance users. And in a couple of cases, there was other mitigating factors. The, the sample we had tested at the Connecticut Forensic Lab, which is does all the, law, the state and local law enforcement testing for the state of Connecticut, um, that's where it tested positive. We had that sample taken and sent to the DEA uh, lab in New York, just for confirmation, just to make sure, like, uh, the Connecticut lab is accredited and everything. There's never been any issues, but you, something like this, you just want to make sure. So the yeah. DEA asked permission. Sure. We sent it to there. They also got confirmation of fentanyl and the marijuana. So we do have this one sample. Now, the one thing the specifically the DEA chemists um, say and the the DEA and the task forces who went out, they actually overdosed. They actually went out and interviewed this particular overdose victim, this the overdose victim that the sample is tied to, and the dealer of the sample. So they actually interviewed both parties. And the belief of everybody, the chemists, the you know, the investigators, is that this was not an intentional fentanyl overdose, uh, you know, mixing of the fentanyl with marijuana. What they believe is that Either this and this part they couldn't figure out. They think either the buyer or the seller um, threw it into this container, which it was seized in. That uh, it's a little plastic container that probably contained fentanyl, remnants of fentanyl from a previous hiding it in this container, and that's how the marijuana got contaminated. Um, it was a pretty significant amount of fentanyl, though, so it wasn't like you know, like trace amounts. It was a decent amount of fentanyl. Um, mm. But, they, you know, they do believe, based on everything, that that's probably an unintentional or accidental, depending on the terminology you want to use or what, you know, I have this, this, this argument comes up all the time too, unintentional, accidental, what's the, you know, just like, is it an overdose or is it a poisoning? These, these kind of questions come up all the time where they basically mean the same thing. You're, you're, arguing over nuances, but, um, so we do think it was unintentional and, but, you know, it is a positive case. Mm -hmm. And I do think it, you know, it makes you understand that other is serious, other things like this can occur. Um, we know that most drug dealers aren't single substance drug dealers. Most of them are poly substance drug dealers. Um, and that, you know, they're not doing, proper hygiene or quality mm -hmm. control and they're not making sure that the table they use to bag up the fentanyl isn't now spotless when they're going to bag up the marijuana bud so these types of things could occur um and i, I think it's important for people to know that in this day and age the drug market especially you know on the east coast and i'm sure it's the same out on the west coast and the rest of the country is extremely volatile um, when I, you know, we look at law enforcement seizure data here and the testing that's going on, we're not getting anything that's a single substance, whether it's it's fentanyl, whether it's cocaine, whether it's it's crack. There's all these weird 
active substances in it. And I'm not even talking about the things we would normally think as cut like isotol or mannitol or vitamin B or, the, or, or these or lactate or these types of things. Like, you know, we're seeing fentanyl, tremadol, and xylazine in a lot of our stuff or pyrophoral fentanyl, fentanyl, and xylazine. So the, the, key, the key factor out of what you have is you have 39 overdoses where people said, I only took weed and 39 is not an insignificant number. Okay. Cool. For, for your, for any area, you get a positive hit off of the cannabis, right? And people could say it was commingled or whatever, but we really, we, we, you know, or it wasn't intentional or whatever. The fact is you had 39 people that said I was only smoking weed, I overdosed. And, and, and the other important factor here is you said that they were unconscious, gave them, they showed signs of opiate overdose. They gave them Narcan and they came to Narcan only works on an opioid period. It doesn't work on meth. It doesn't work on weed. If you know, like, let's say you magically went unconscious from weed. Okay. You know, it's not like that though. Narcan is not going to bring you back. If you have a cocaine overdose, it doesn't work on that. If you're having a panic attack, Narcan doesn't work on a panic attack. If you get somebody Narcan and they're waking up, that's going to be an opioid overdose. So, I mean, it's, it's significant. So the problem is, is that you have these academics, and you have uh, some public health people who will come out and say, stop trying to panic the public. Our weed supply is safe. <laughs> and, you know, what it really comes down to is we, you and I have had offline discussions about this where people on drugs do things that don't make sense. You know, it, it doesn't make sense that they do certain things, right? Um, drugs make you do weird stuff. And is it plausible that some dude is going to think I'm going to make the best weed ever. And I'm going to sprinkle a little bit of, a uh, little bit of fentanyl on it and then put it in the market. Certainly. Or they could have been careless and processing their weed next to their fentanyl stash. Right. But the fact is you, we had it right. No. Yeah. You're hundred percent right. And, and uh, you know, that is, <laughs> that is the kind of thing that happens. You get these battles, you get the people who are saying like, I'm putting, you know, I put out this bulletin because I'm being an alarmist and I want to scare people and this and that. And then I got people on the other side who say, I put out the bulletin because I'm I'm pro safe supply and I'm pro legalization. And this will speed up the legalization of the marijuana in Connecticut. And I'm like, actually, I'm not doing either one of those things. I don't want people to die. And my, my North star and my goal is to keep people alive. And, you know, and I think that's the goal of the vast majority of not everybody in public safety and public health is, is to keep people alive. That's your primary mission. And I, you know, I told my, the, the tractors on both sides is if I knew this and didn't put this out and people started to die, when you come at me and say, how can you withhold this information from us? Yeah. And, you know, and like I tell them is like my personal beliefs are not that in my bulletin, I didn't tell people not to do marijuana. I didn't tell them not to do drugs. Um, in my bulletin, I put links to harm reduction groups and services in Connecticut um, yeah. because I'm a realist. I know there's people doing drugs and I know there's people who are going to continue to do drugs um, depart despite my personal opinions on it. And, you know, but I also know that 
the longer we can keep those people alive, the better chances they're going to get in, into treatment and hopefully get into recovery and have a meaningful and productive life. And that's all we're trying to do. And but you do. It, but like you said, is the problem is, is the drug market is extremely volatile. And, mm-hmm. you know, and even and I don't know what you you guys see out west and you've had legalized marijuana a lot longer than we have out on the east coast but you know i don't see the illegal demand going away like oh, it doesn't no you know and i'm like if i'm buying you know let's just use marijuana because that's what's going to be legal here is you know if i'm buying you know an ounce of marijuana from my dealer on tuesday why because it's legal now on Wednesday, am I going to pay three times as much money for it with all the taxes and fees and overhead? I'm not. I'm going to keep on buying it from the guy I've been buying it from for the last couple of years. So the market isn't going anywhere. I mean, when I use the analogy, and I'm sure this is the same out of the West Coast, I can go anywhere in Connecticut and and in any town in any city and still find an after-hours place. Place that is selling alcohol beyond the regulations of when and where it should be sold. And yeah, we don't go after those cases anymore that much because we're too busy doing anything, but they're still there, just like the illegal drug market is always going to be there. Um, you know, so it's, you know, it's it's a very difficult situation because it, I think, especially the marijuana part, it brings up a lot of strong feelings on both sides, on the pro-legalization side and the anti-legalization side. But the kind of the way I look at it is, you know, if there is even some accidental exposures from marijuana because of, like we said, poor poor quality control, poor hygiene, accidental, in, unintentional contamination, whatever, uh, most marijuana users are probably going to be opiate naive. And if, you know, there's probably a good chance they're going to overdose. And if they don't get... You know, if they're unaware of these things because they're all they do is smoke marijuana, you know, we don't want them dying. Like have naloxone on hand, you know, do these things that we know can save lives and and keep people safe. But it it is a very uh, challenging conversation because, you know, you have people who will be. Oh, we have to listen to people who use drugs and listen to what they're saying. We have to take what they're saying as as the truth and understand it. That's how we're going to be able to address these issues better. And then when I bring up the 39 cases where they're saying they smoked marijuana, they don't want to apply the same standards. So like, well, you know, there has to be a reason why they're saying that they, you know, they have to be lying because they were afraid they're going to get in trouble. And I'm like, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. You you just can't like, you know, and like I said, if we look at these other narratives that we have, these people are being honest. You know, like I said earlier, they may not know exactly what they're taking, but they're admitting to doing something illegal and doing something they know they shouldn't be doing. And why all of a sudden, because of these 39 cases, would I believe that they're lying? You know, it's it just seems like a, a hard a hard thing to really wrap my head around is like, why do, is it just because it's the weed they're lying? You know, like these 39 cases are isolated now because, and I think it's because the the marijuana part of this brings up very strong feelings on both sides. 
And to be honest, you and I both worked the street. I worked in a, in a legal area for, I mean, I was in California. Um, yeah. it, nobody lies about weed anymore. <laughs> I mean, nobody's like, oh, I'm going to get, even like, uh, you know, now I, now I'm in Idaho. Okay. Even in Idaho, nobody here goes like, you know, like, I'm not going to say I got weed because I don't want to go to jail. You know, we're like the last state that, you know, still takes weed seriously. And even still people will be like, yeah, I got weed. So what? I mean, like, yeah. it's not, there's no stigma like there used to be. They've totally normalized it, right? No matter where you land on this thing. The, I think the key important takeaway, because the majority of people that listen to this are cops uh, with some public health people in there. I think the key takeaway from everybody is you can't trust the drug supply. You know, it's like, you know, if, if you know, like you brought up Xanax, a majority of the Xanax that we recover is not real Xanax. It's, it's uh powder order from China and pressed into a pill or it's fentanyl or it's something else, you know, and, you know, for people to just say that, um, you know, dismissing these 39 cases in new England, you, you can't do that because the, you know, and, you know, we've been waiting for this weed fentanyl correlation because we know it's possible. It doesn't make sense to do it. Why would a dealer put weed on fentanyl? It doesn't make sense. It's, it's dumb to do it. But drug dealers and drug users do lots of dumb things that defy common sense, you know, because drugs affect the brain. They don't make good decisions. So we know it was coming one day. Here we are. And really what you have to look at is, hey, we had 39 people OD. They said all they did was weed. We got a confirmation on some bud that we got. And people should just take the takeaway should not be anything about legalization or whatever. Your key takeaway is you can't trust what people are giving you. Yeah. You know, it's not, you know, there's no checks and balances with some dude <laughs> mixing stuff in a Nutribullet in his, in his garage. Well, and the thing too is, you know, and I think you hit it right on the head. You just can't trust the supply and, you know, not to go off on this tangent because I, I know some in the public health sphere will be like, well, you know, a lot of people trust their dealers a, a lot and they trust them more than they trust their doctors or they trust their, <laughs> their whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but you got to understand a lot of times the dealer at the street level or the, the dealer who is selling the, the, the individual for use amounts isn't even 100% sure of what they have. And, you know, just because you trust that person doesn't mean what he's selling you is actually what you think it is. And, and that's the problem. And, you know, and like you said, with the Xanax and the, and the press prescription pills, we're seeing that the same thing. Like, I don't think we see any more legitimately diverted prescription pills anymore. They're all these counterfeit press pills. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you're seeing it on the West coast. We're actually seeing where, you know, like, Xanax is supposed to be uh, the benzodiazepine olazepam, right? So we're actually seeing them press other synthetic benzodiazepines mm -hmm. that have been pulled from the market because of their harmful effects, and they're pressing those into the Xanax pills too. So now we have, you get these prescription pills that are either fentanyl, meth, or uh, an illicit synthetic copy of a benzo or what the pill is supposed to be like in xanax case another benzodiazepine that the chemical structure has been pulled by the fda because it's harmful side effects and not that it's being produced in a in a legit lab it's been 
produced in you know one of these Chinese labs that with no quality control and garbage chemicals and stuff like that. It's it's not really what you want to be putting into your body, and it's and we're seeing that all the time. And you know we have a massive cocaine and crack problem here in Connecticut, um, and you know we see the same thing in that supply. We see about ten to fifteen percent of our cocaine and crack supply here in Connecticut has fentanyl in it. Yes. You know, and 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 I'm sure they trust their dealers, too. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's (laughs) again, I don't know if that really makes sense, um, but we're seeing it. And, you know, I have I have chemists and scientists arguing with me all the time about, well, it's not it's not possible from the science science part of the chemistry part. You know, fentanyl becomes inert at 660 degrees. And if you use a Bic lighter to heat up crack, it, it gets in excess of 1,500 degrees or 1,200 degrees, whatever the temperatures are. Don't come at me. I might be off on my temperatures. But, um, you know, but and I'm like, okay, I'm not even arguing that point. You could be 100% correct. I said, but how do you explain to me person overdoses, EMS and police show up, there's crack left. EMS says it's opioid overdosing symptoms. They respond to Narcan. And like you said, Narcan only works on opioids. We seize the sample from the scene of this overdose, send it to the lab, and it has fentanyl on it. It is what it is. It is and that's what I said. I didn't go to school to be a chemist or, or a scientist, but you, I, it is what it is. Like, if you're telling me I have all these things, how do the, how do the dots not connect? To being, you know, the the fentanyl in the crack supply is affecting them when they're smoking it. And if that's true, why can't it be true in the marijuana supply? Now, again, I, I don't know of any good reason why you would want to do it. It kind of makes no sense to us, you know, from, a, you know, an economics standpoint or a, a drug standpoint. It kind of doesn't make any sense any of these ways, but doesn't mean they're not doing it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bobby, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, you, you got some great knowledge. I appreciate that you came out here and, you know, filled us in. And yeah, is there anything else you want to let them know before you leave? Onlinedrugtraining.com. No, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. It, it, we got to get this cleared up. Key takeaway yeah. for cops on the street. Don't trust whatever drugs you see on the street. Don't trust that that's what they are. You know, it could be anything under the sun. Times have changed. Our days of the NHTSA 5, PCP, heroin, coke, uh, meth, and weed are done. We don't have the five anymore. Now it's uh, two new drugs coming to market every week uh, through the novel psychoactive substance market. So uh, the best way you can keep up on those trends is our friends at OnlineDrugTraining.com. You might recognize some of the instructors over there. Uh, They got some good intel, but... Uh, Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Drug Training Podcast with Keith Graves. We'd love to hear your comments and respond to your questions in future episodes. Visit our accompanying website at www.onlinedrugtraining.com for more information, advice, training, and to get in touch. And join us again on the next edition of the Drug Training Podcast.